Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, uh, your cruise director. Uh, this week's episode, I technically don't know if this week's episode is brought to you by Conversations with Bill Crystal. They're, they're our advertiser this week, but we're doing two podcasts this week, and I did not bother to check with the salespeople to find out whether or not I should be reading the ad in both episodes. But since I'm a fan of Conversations with Crystal, I'm happy to say that this podcast, too, is brought to you by Conversations with Crystal. We'll hear more about that in a little while. Um, so today I'm taking another bleary-eyed break from book tour stuff to um, basically do another rank punditry episode and by somewhat popular demand. Um, we, have, <laughs> we have Tim Carney back with us. Hi, Tim. Hi, Jonah. Um, you are the uh, commentary editor of the Washington Examiner, yep. my colleague here at the American Enterprise Institute. You're a uh, the patriarch of an increasingly large separatist compound in suburban Maryland. That's right. And uh, so I have a bone to pick with you. But you, you've got to keep going. I'm assistant T-ball coach. Uh, I apologize. I am acting baseball commissioner at St. Andrew Apostle Parish. And I am assistant uh, boys baseball coach at St. Andrew Apostle Parish. So Basically, you are a living cog of civil society. As long as that involves the Catholic Church and baseball, yes. Yeah, that's fine. Those count. Um, it's a rich ecosystem. So the reason why I was throwing a little shade at you about by somewhat popular demand is that the last time you were on, there was a lot of chatter about how it was a great podcast. But at some point, someone asked you whether or not – or someone brought up whether or not you were – you discussed Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> and you said, wait, what's that now? <laughs> um, and – so it was very clear that you had not listened to at least some of our episodes because the, yes, I, Bigfoot erotica is a recurring theme on this podcast. I'm afraid I have uh, skipped the Bigfoot erotica episodes. And I am, I am tempted to read, from, read to you from uh, Wild Encounter. <laughs> but but uh, Jack already looks pained, so maybe we'll save that for at least the end of the show. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway um, – so I want to start with a uh, weird out of left field thing. I was on the drive down here. I was listening to the Weekly Standard podcast. They've got a very nice niche podcast over there. Not the substandard, the Weekly Standard. And they did a uh, sort of live from Wisconsin thing. Cause yep. You know, and it was pretty good. It was a good panel. Steve does a good panel. Um, and he managed to only talk when he didn't have cheese curds or chicken wings in his <laughs> mouth. So that was good. And they, they chewed on this question that I didn't think anybody had a good answer to. And I have my own answer to it, but I'm kind of curious about yours. They're talking about liberal media bias, something we have chewed over yep. a zillion times, right? And part of the problem, they rightly said, this was Charlie Sykes and Warren and all those guys, is that people who are cons Republican or conservative inclined just tend not to go into journalism, mm -hmm. right? There's a certain mindset that goes into journalism, and it's not – it's not particularly conservative. And if you are really passionate about conservative politics, you tend to go into politics, not into journalism. Yep. So I have my theories about this. What is your theory about this? So I think that is some of it, that journalism – I still remember being a 22-year-old reporter at Human Events, conservative outlet, and being in the, the press gallery outside the Senate. And so everybody there is a credential reporter. And somehow we were all telling college stories. And I was a young one there, but I also realized – 
everybody else either had an advanced degree or went to a sort of significantly more prestigious college. Yeah. Uh, and I went to a great a great college, uh, but it's not one that's hard to get into. And right. so I was here surrounded by these guys. Well, who- uh, in fairness to St. John's, it's hard to get into – in the sense that you have to be the certain kind of eggheady person. Yes, you, you have, and you have to be, yeah, willing to read Homer and think that it matters, etc. But you know, I'm I've got Harvard and Yale guys. I've got guys with masters from, uh, you know, the Columbia Journalism School or all these other places. And I realize, looking around, somebody else the next day said something about sort of the. Um, the how upper class this was, and there wasn't really a lot of uh, socioeconomic diversity. I realized that it was sort of a, a leisureman's job. Mm-hmm. It was something that you're willing to make less money than you otherwise could make. It was sort of uh, blue collar pay for white collar people. And so, why would you do it? One reason is is fun, but another there's. There is a sense, and you see it in this real treacly way at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, in which it can seem like a public service. We are serving the country by doing this job. And I, I don't necessarily object to that idea, but I do, I do think that a liberal is more likely to say, okay, I'm going to do – you know, just like they're more likely to, to stock the, the ranks of the, the NGOs and nonprofit organizations as their full-time job. Conservatives are more likely to volunteer. Liberals are more likely to have their job be something they think is a public service. Yeah. So that's, that's not a, you know, a data-tested uh, observation, but that's something I've thought about for almost 20 years now. Yeah. So the reason I, one of the reasons why I bring this up, and I, I don't know if you know this or if I listeners know this, but I have a new book out. Um, <laughs> and part of part of my argument, borrowing from Sh- Joseph Schumpeter, is that the that rich, successful bourgeois, don't have to be titans, but just mm-hmm. successful people tend to have kids who go into the new yep. class, professionals, idea merchants, artists, writers, intellectuals, bureaucrats, <laughs> social workers, yada, yada, yada. Um, and by definition, those people, I shouldn't say by definition, uh, those people are largely more skeptical of, critical of, adversarial to um, bourgeois society. Yep. Right? Because they're sort of the ungrateful, spoiled children of capitalism, right? And and so for me, because I know you're doing all, you're doing this book about civil society and all this kind of stuff. I want your take on this. I have had this theory for a long time. I would always get asked, you know, why are why are Democrats so much better at politics? than Republicans are, right? And um, part of my answer was always that because Republicans tend to be, and I don't mean this as pejorative as it sounds, normal people. (laughs) (laughs) And what I mean by that is your typical Republican, right? He grows up in some fairly uh, homogeneous, culturally, ethnically, whatever, um, suburb, community, city, doesn't really matter. He tends to be successful in business, right, or in the military. Um, and at some point, he decides he wants to – either he's disgusted with Washington and wants to fix it and he thinks his business skills – Ron Johnson, right, thinks his business skills will fix Washington or his leadership skills from the military will fix Washington. And he wants to go in part to give back. And I know you have the same problem. Actually, as a quick digression, uh, I.O. Carney, one of my favorite examples of – 
the, what's wrong with giving back. The cronut one? You want to do it really quickly? <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the guy who invented the cronut made a lot of money. And then when he said he wanted to start up charities so that he could give back to society. And when I read that, I blurted out out loud, you don't have to give back. <laughs> We gave you the money because you gave us the cronut, That's all right? right? You already gave us the cronut. We're even now, okay? Yeah. You're a millionaire. We got cronuts. <laughs> and, and that's right. And I think that – but I, I actually I think that speaks to a much larger point about capitalism generally is people think that, you know, er, that people who get rich did it by exploiting people when in yeah. reality they gave people something that they really wanted, right? But anyway, so you have this average guy who comes – he's t- 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 tends to be a guy – tends to be married, tends to have kids, and he tends to go through the normal stages of adulthood in civil society before he becomes interested in politics, right? And so the example I always use is, remember when Hillary Clinton had that line about, at this point, what what difference does it make about Benghazi? Yeah. Okay. The guy who asked the question was Ron Johnson, right? If you, you know, the timeline isn't perfect, but if you, if you rewind 30 years from that moment, what was Ron Johnson doing? Well, he was trying to figure out probably how to get the bank to give him a loan to buy a third delivery truck to yep. deliver pallets of plastic to Oshkosh, right? Yep. Or maybe he was trying to figure out, um, you know, how much money he could give to his church that week, right? And Hillary Clinton was putting the final touches on her dissertation on Saul Alinsky, you know, <laughs> and and it's a different orientation, right? So. Normal the, the Republican the typically normal Republicans tend to think of civil society as this place where you do charity, where you do good works, where you do these things to fix the world. And liberals, because they basically are, you know, eschaton immunitizers and think that politics is a substitute for religion, tend to take politics much more seriously and think about it much more. Do you think that's right? I think there's an element, uh definite element of truth in there. First of all, the I'm always skeptical, though, of the premise. Why does the other side do politics better than we do? Mm. Right now, there are two liberals sitting in front of microphones at a podcast saying, why do Republicans sure, sure, do that's politics totally so fair. much better? Totally it always fair. seems that way. And part of the thinking that goes behind that is, well, if we're winning, it's because people agree with us. If they're winning, it's because they politicize better. But I would say an advantage that the left has, um, and Grover Norquist used to say this, is that this is what they see life as being about is the the state and government and that sort of thing. Similar to one of my complaints about youth sports now is that there are kids who just 365 days a year, they're trying to get better at baseball. Yeah. Well, my idea of baseball is when it's nice out and you have free time, you should be playing with your kids. I mean, you should be playing with your friends. And then two days a week you have yeah. games. And that the, the sort of difference between you're more likely to sort of see politics as a full-time profession in in that way if you're if you're from the left the reason i would say what i sort of came to in writing my book though is that i think a lot of the trump support was the the transference of that mindset that's focused on the central state to a big part of the right mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. these are people who uh, my critique of Occupy Wall Street is these people want to change the world and they think Washington is the only way to do it because right. they don't know civil society. And then that also has to be my, my critique of Trump. Yeah. These people don't have the American dream visible to them and they think it's because of Washington. So I would say that, yeah, in general, that is a difference. Noah Rothman um, has a really good piece in the latest commentary about how one of the reasons why liberals are so miserable right now 
is because they think that they can fix everything in society through politics and it's not working for them. Yeah. I think there's a lot of and, and I think that that's one of the reasons um, – I mean you look at Trump and he's not sort of solving the problem. Well, if you think – if you're looking for your sort of hope in Washington, you're thinking, OK, well – Maybe that guy couldn't solve it. Maybe they're voting for him because he's a strong man, or maybe the the, the the Trump country analogy to this is, well, nobody's going to be able to solve our problems. So we may as well have a guy who's going to punch the right people in the face. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. But which would be a more realistic version of that liberal mindset? No, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, but getting back to journalism, I mean, it does seem to be this that people who want to fix the world. Go into journalism. If I can just get the truth out, it's the same reason. Same same reason why there are so many fewer, and I don't think it was always the case, but so many fewer conservative college professors. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that there is this idea that if I could just explain to people why they are wrong or get them the right set of facts, that all of a sudden they'll agree with me on everything because they don't have because they'll they'll realize how illegitimate their position is, and I think that explains a big chunk of liberal media bias. It's not so much that they want to help Democrats. Mm-hmm. They do want to help you. Let's be honest. They want to help Democrats. But it's that, you know, the way I always used to say it is is if you look at the um, – so much of the language way journalists describe government action, right? So that's whenever government expands or introduces some huge sweeping new policy, the government took a big step forward today, yeah. right? Um, and whenever it re- deregulates something, the government turned back the clock or, you know, that it withdrew a safety net. And I, I think that you could look into those. The other is the, the do something mm-hmm. bias that's particular to the Washington press corps. Yeah. That, A, if you're covering Congress, you want Congress to be more relevant. But I remember it was a few weeks after the 2000 election and there was talk of the bill to uh, reform voting. Because remember, you had butterfly ballots. You had hanging chads down in Florida. And the all all of that stuff. So the the clear answer was that Congress needs to have a solution for this, even though elections are in the U.S. one hundred percent a state uh, run thing. Congress needs to pass something. And I remember a few months into two thousand one, a couple reporters who were straight news reporters, and so they weren't going to say, "Oh, well, this provision or you know McConnell's is better than Schumer's or whatever." They were going. They were just saying, "I can't believe they just haven't." passed an election reform bill yet. Yeah. So that was like the acceptable, nonpartisan, non-ideological view was not pass Bill A or Bill B, but pass something. something. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. that to them, and I thought, well, isn't it a position to say Congress should pass nothing? But that wasn't even on the table. So that do something bias often manifests itself as a, a liberal bias when it comes to reporting on Congress. Yeah. Now, it's funny you mentioned about the the – about how they want whatever they're covering to be more important. I'm a little older than you, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, but I remember there was this kind of – it was never articulated, but there was this kind of gloominess, this glumness to a lot of the reporters who historically covered the arms control, Cold War, <laughs> U.S.-Soviet relations beat, right? And that was like considered – I remember my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, used to talk about how the – the, the the think tankers and eggheads in Washington who were in charge who 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 studied that stuff yep just thought they were more important thinkers than everybody else right and so did the journalists right and so there was this I, I wish I had a good anecdote for it but there was this sort of sense among 
I remember watching Crossfire back then. There were just some people who were just like, well, I'm not going to matter as much if this if this wonderfully fantastic thing happens. And I, I – some of the sort of old gray hairs that I first ran into when I came to Washington in 99, 2000 – uh, conservative Cole Warriors, Stan Evans and yeah. Alan Riskind and um, and they and Bob all, Novak too and, and Bob Novak but I mean so Novak and other guys like Tom Winter who were in that same circles they had varied many interests yeah, but yeah. for Evans and Riskind the the commies were the main story and so when that was done they had to go back and write on how, you know, uh, McCarthy, yeah, he was bad, but he was right on a lot of things. Right, or, right. Here's these Venona papers that just came out. All these things that were true and interesting and important, but it always seemed like you were sort of uh, reliving the glory days when you were so, – and the left does this with civil rights, obviously. You were so obviously right, and right. the other side was so obviously wrong, but now it's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it can be kind of sad, yeah. Yeah. So, so since we're sticking on – I mean – I guess we can talk about day-to-day punditry stuff, but everything seems to change so quickly, and we'll get to some of that, I guess. But so it's not quite rank punditry; it's 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 it's, it's um, effulgent punditry. <laughs> um, uh, we're uh, um, I don't know. You saw this piece in Vanity Fair that came out yeah. today. So, for listeners who don't know, this woman I don't really know, Tina Nguyen, I think is how you pronounce Nguyen. It's it's like Nguyen. It's like the most common Vietnamese name. Yeah, but I just yeah. I don't. I pronounce it like Tony Gwynn. Okay. All right. So Tina Gwynn does this piece, which um, I did a sort of ranty thing for National Review Online. We'll be up in the show notes about it because I just thought it was so – I wasn't even mad. I mean it was – I kind of felt like Ron Burgundy talking to his dog. <laughs> I'm not even mad. I'm impressed, you know, um, because it was so bad about um, just not knowing um, just some of the most basic – dividing lines on the right. So I'm lumped in a paragraph with Jordan Peterson, Richard Spencer, the white supremacist guy, Mike Chernovich, the crazy guy, um, Brett Stevens, and um, I don't know, one or two other people as members of the far right. Far right. You know, and like, all because, and solely because we're supposedly opposed to identity politics. Now, I am opposed to identity politics, but Richard Spencer is in favor of identity politics yeah. for white people, right? And she seems oblivious to this whole fact. I mean, and you, it is one of the weirdest things growing up as a conservative who actually knows how to speak the dialect to watch liberals sort of go spelunking into our caves and like holding up manure and saying, oh, this must be, you know, their ambrosia because they yeah. just don't know what they're talking about. Well, and you read a guy like Paul Krugman who will regularly say, well, the problem with the thinking on the right is X, Y, Z. And then will regularly say, here are the thinkers I care about and none of them are on the right because there's no interesting thought out there. Right. And you hear that a lot. And I think it's parallel to and maybe even a precursor of a lot of the attitudes in academia about certain ideas being beyond the pale and not needing to study. And obviously, this is a thing that goes way back. I remember uh, in 2002 trying to set up a debate on the Iraq war and the people organizing it with me thought that sort of anti-war conservatives were a debunked position and didn't need to be listened to. So that's this moving of the window of what is uh, what is a discredited position is a yeah. constant tug of war. But in this case, I do think it's uh, there is an idea that 
you don't need to read any conservatives. And that's, that's one of the reasons that they'll be so um, uh, so unaware of it. Who was it who called Ben Shapiro a, a neocon yesterday where I was just thinking that – that I mean I've been called a, a, a neocon too, just people who, who throw it out as a term. But this was by an actual like journalist who was doing it and that we all look the same to them mm. is, is a very common thing. But that you wonder if – if Brett Stevens is the far right, this is, I know <laughs> a guy who you know who, who I think did he endorse a, a carbon tax or something? I mean, whose whose positions are he, uh, he won a Pulitzer for writing columns about how the Republicans deserve to lose in twenty sixteen? Yeah. You know? So then, then what's not uh, far right? And the the thing that we used to say people would say three years ago, looking at college kids who were saying anything uh, anything to the left of say Krugman, certainly to the left of Larry Summers, was beyond the pale and unacceptable. There was sort of this chuckle and this joke on the right where you'd say, oh, they're going to have a, a rude awakening when they get out into the world. Yeah. And my colleague at the Examiner, Emily Jashinsky, who worked at Young America's Foundation, said, we shouldn't say that because <laughs> that might not happen when they get out in the real world. Yeah. And she's written repeatedly, no, when they get out in the real world, then they start drawing these these sort of bounds of permissible dissent. And so, um, you know, Kevin Williamson's firing at, from The Atlantic was one of these things. But I do think that there is this um, idea that you don't need to distinguish among among the conservatives. So it, it bring and one and in your piece you referred to uh, Megan McArdle, who like yeah. me is from Manhattan. And so like we grow up with these people, with far left liberal as our, liberals as our teachers, in my case, liberal parents, um, and then the people you're watching on the news are, are Dan Rather, etc. cetera. Uh, the straight news reporters you're reading in the New York Times growing up then become the liberal columnists in yeah, the New York know, Times exactly. today. And then you go off to college. And even in, in my school, which was right of most colleges, a lot of left. And so we get, we get exposed to this constantly. And I think you and I have probably had some career success in part because of our ability to um, empathize with the left. And I say often, I, I speak liberal. My crony capitalism arguments are in part trying to make free enterprise arguments to people on the left. And there's a lot of con liberals who can speak conservative, but I think that they're seeing that uh, increasingly as a, as a vice if you can empathize with our side. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. There's actually some data on this that conservatives are better at passing ideological Turing tests. Yeah. Um, if you ask a liberal to describe what a conservative position is, they usually get it wrong. If you ask a conservative, they do better at describing yeah. what a liberal is. And uh, there are some people who want to say this is a function of the conservative brain versus the liberal brain. I think it has more to do with what you're talking about is that we grow up by definition as part of a minority culture, yep. you know, and when you're a member of a minority culture, you got to know your own culture and the culture around you. And so like I wrote, I edited this book, Proud to be Right, which had a whole bunch of young conservative guys in it. And I made this argument there about how, you know, it's sort of like there is a reason why the ranks of stand-up comedy are wildly over-represent over blacks, gays, Jews and Canadians. <laughs> and it's because all of them are basically yeah. um there there's a little bit of a visitor from Mars thing because you you know your own stuff and you know how you're a little different from the mainstream culture. Canadians grow up on our TV, yeah. but they're a little outside of it and that it's that critical distance that gives them the ability to make jokes about stuff. And the same thing with gays, same thing with blacks and 
to a certain extent, it's the same thing with with conservatives is that we can speak their language, but they're really bad at speaking our language. And I think it's Ramesh who makes this point that the that's the real test to see if someone is a fair opinion journalist is whether or not they can describe their opponent's position in terms that their opponent would agree with. Mm-hmm. And I think Krugman regularly fails that. Yep. He and I and I and and for him, I don't think it's because he doesn't understand. I think it's because he thinks everything that come all the good faith stuff that comes out of conservatives' mouths is really um to cover. It's code, right? Yeah. And once you believe that, that's basically a conspiracy theory. Once you believe that, you never have to listen to the other side about anything, right? I mean, that's why I think Russ Roberts is so good about this stuff, who's coming on in the next podcast, because he is constantly trying to remind the listener or the reader where his biases are so he's aware of them. And, yep. um, but, but when these reporters do this sort of gorillas in the mist crap, it just <laughs> – I stopped paying attention to it I think it, it was when ago. David Kirkpatrick was the first conservative yeah, reporter yeah, yeah, that yeah. you started using that phrase back yeah. in 04 or whatever. Yeah. I remember him being at the – and I think – and the thing is that he actually tried. I mean yeah. when, when I talk about journalists I like, a lot of the mainstream ones are people who are liberals who say, I'm going to figure out this mindset. Mm-hmm. And Kirkpatrick was at the uh, the Republican Platform Committee, which I was covering for Novak um, in 04. And he would come up to me and be like, all right, so this is what I'm thinking is the dividing line. And he would really try yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to get it. But it was funny that there was no way that they were <laughs> going to need somebody to be like, let's go explain, you know, who these feminists are and what they're actually thinking. The New York Times wasn't going to have uh, a reporter like that. So some of the, uh, the, the my favorite journalists are these liberals who try to put themselves in the mindset and better understand um, – better understand conservatives like that. But uh, so for all the critiques of guerrilla and the mist journalism, I always thought it was better than the, you know, F them. They're all the same. That Yeah, no, I think <laughs> that's right. I mean, and, and that, I try to make that point is that at least the condescending efforts, right? You know, oh, look, conservatives care for their young too. Yeah. You know, at least <laughs> they're trying to find the humanity in them. You know, yes. it's the other kind where, and I have to say Sam Tannenhaus is guilty of this sometimes on an intellectual level, um, where... They go back and they're trying – they go back with a thesis and then they just sort of connect these dots that cannot be connected in organic living memory or understanding of the subject to construct a narrative that didn't exist about, yeah. you know, conservatives. You know, really, I've discovered the Rosetta Stone. All conservatives are really – even if they don't know them, they're all really fans of Calhoun, you know, <laughs> and it's that kind of stuff. Usually it comes <laughs> – yeah, it goes back to uh, – or the civil rights uh, movement, you know, that can, you can understand conservatism if you just think of Wallace. Right. Um, and there are like three or four books written on that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, I mean, and you, ne- and you can never, and if you ever point out that more Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Acts than Democrats, say, yeah, but they're all liberals now. And, it's, and the data doesn't support that either. Um, but the, anyway. um, another thing to think about in this regard, though, is I just think that the philosophical there's more philosophical bases on the right than we typically acknowledge. Um, that there's some people who are libertarians first, who just want to be left alone, leave me alone. And sometimes people on the right try to say that that is what the right is. Right. Again, Grover Norquist says, we're the leave us alone coalition. And 
I used to think that way. Now I'm again with the the research on civil society and that sort of thing. No, you know, left alone, you're not you're not a right. human anymore. You're the cyclops from from the Odyssey, and uh, so I'll, sometimes it's there just is a, a human nature and a natural law. Sometimes it's uh, I think a lot of what. Trump's uh, tapping into is more this, uh, and uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this, or Haidt, however you pronounce his name, uh, talks about this. Uh, Win. <laughs> his psychology <laughs> of the things. Just sort of um, this yearning for some cosmic justice, that mm-hmm. the bad people get what they deserve and that the good people get what they deserve. I think that's very prevalent in different ways on the left and right, but a lot of conservatism is just that, that I don't want lazy people to be able to you know, get ahead or undeserving, etc. Um, and so there's th- these many various different mindsets that populate the right. And the worst efforts that you're talking about are the ones that try to rope all of them in right. to one. Yeah. No, I mean... Um, and so, I mean, this gets, I have a long standing gripe against philosophical pragmatism and what it did to American progressivism, but I'm going to, I'm going to take that to, 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 um, Russ Roberts, but there is this sort of fundamental, I wrote about this in my last book. Um, uh, there's this, this asymmetry, right? At least among Washington geeky right wingers, broad brush, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the people that you and I sort of grew up around, Cato, AI, Heritage, America's Future Foundation, you know, yeah. we're kind of, you know, we're, we're we're like Dungeons and Dragons geeks, right? You know, we're like, I'm a level nine Hayekian, you know, <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm a level 14 Kirkian, right? And we argue about this stuff. And David Brooks, uh, E.J. Dion tells a story in one of his books about how David Brooks once went up to him and said, so who's on your ties, what he meant by that is like among nerdy <laughs> right wingers, and you know the types I'm talking about. Yeah, people would have a Adam Smith tie yeah. or whatever. You know, we would wear our philosophers literally on our ties, and and EJ openly admits he says, you know, um, liberals have a different orientation towards their intellectual tradition. They tend to be forward looking, not back looking. They don't subscribe to sort of these intellectual philosophical schools, and I think there's a lot of it's very liberating for liberals to not have to sort of name check what traditions they're in. But I've always thought it was a kind of strength on the right that we like to have these arguments, mm-hmm. right? You know, and there were times when you and I could have probably gotten into some pretty heady yep. arguments about sort of – you were always – you weren't quite a libertarian, but you weren't quite a paleo – you were like a – you were, and you weren't a, technically a paleo-libertarian, which – but I was kind of in that area. You flirted with it, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, the problem with the reason why I hesitate to call you a paleo libertarian is because the people who I first butted heads with who used that title were the um, then became alt writers. Yeah, I mean, they're basically the sort of uh, von Mises Institute. Not to be confused, von Mises is different than the von Mises people in Alabama. But you know, libertarians for segregation and slavery was yep. always to me a very hard, <laughs> hard circle to close. <laughs> um, and uh, but um. But anyway, that's my point. Is like you and I could literally talk about this kind of stuff forever. I don't know that liberal, you know, our opposite numbers on the other side could. Well, do this about I, what you see stuff. today on the left, where I think they do it um, more forcefully, maybe just because they're in in the wilderness now, power wise in Washington, is on specific policy issues. Mm. I don't know if you follow um, the the universal basic income versus job guarantee. Uh, debate. 
I have not followed it of late on the left. Um, uh, so it's a real. And I know what both positions that are. Some people are coming, are really pushing proposals more seriously that had been just floating around the left wing ideosphere or whatever, um, Wonkosphere, that there should be a, a federal job guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, and an ancient frigging idea. An ancient idea. And. But it's getting momentum now as you get uh, candidates for Congress, presidential-type candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand talking about it. And as as you get people talking about it, there's this real debate where some philosophical differences are coming out. The idea that our our friend, boss, Arthur Brooks, likes to talk about work having a value and being ennobling and being a good thing in itself is something that a lot of – sort of materialistic types on the left. I don't want to say Marxist, but hardcore mm-hmm. leftists who are more materialistic. They say, no, work is only ever uh, a means to an end, and it's actually paid work is actually bad, and we need to move away from that. But then there's a lot of people who say, no, work is good. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the things that gets highlighted in this debate. Should everybody get money, or should everybody have the opportunity to work uh, yeah. no matter what? And then different uh, monetary ideas about how this is going to affect inflation and this and that. And so there are these moral judgments tied up in it uh, or you know just a higher minimum wage as well as economic analysis so i do find that the the party that's out of power often has slightly more interesting policy arguments and that the left is kind of having that now and Interesting, though, is the wrong word when you're in the middle of it. When people were (laughs) – on our side were talking flat tax versus fair tax, at some point you wanted to bang your head against a wall and say, if Republicans do take over, we're going to be talking about like cutting rates by a few points. We're not going to do a massive overhaul. So, But I still think that the theoretical arguments are are important and that being out of power, if you remember back before – back during the Clinton years, um, and Republicans had some control of Congress, but all they were able to do was pass stuff and, and hope. There there was something kind of nice about the fact that we were able to have more good and open debates. Mm-hmm. And I remember the Bush era when, you know, sort of disagreeing on some stuff got you a little more angry scolds from mm-hmm. – um, uh, from the people in power. So I, I think right now in policy issues, the left is probably having more fun, interesting debates than we are. Yeah, because now, I mean, it's, it's, the disagreements on the right aren't about policy at all or about whether or not you think yes. Trump can make a rock so heavy even he can't <laughs> lift it, right? Um, um, but I, I just want to push back slightly. I take your point because I do think that liberals are more policy-oriented and in the sense that that's where – I mean, if you, if you just look at the, sort of the general Voxer, yeah. sort of Ezra Klein type, they're much more into arguing – it's it's almost a fashion statement, right? Yeah. There that, that we just care about the data, we just care about empirical, yeah. you know, policy stuff. My point is, and I'm not saying this is not a value judgment about which one is better, but like, you know, I used to know a lot of those guys from like Slate and the New Republic and all of them, and some of them like Frank Fort knew far more about conservative intellectual history than they knew anything about like yeah liberal intellectual history, right? I mean, like, the, how many of the how often would you run into somebody sort of again our sort of opposite numbers? the last 20 years who could talk to you, you know, maybe they knew a little Rawls from Rawls, college, right? Yeah. But they're not going to talk to you about, you know, Dewey, you know, or William James yeah. or Rexford Tugwell or any of those guys, right? And meanwhile, I, you know, again, I live in a bubble, rarefied world and this kind of stuff. I, you know, I couldn't swing a dead cat for most of the last 20 years without hitting some conservative or libertarian pinhead who really wanted to argue with me about whether or not 
Whitaker Chambers was right for reading Ayn Rand out of the conservative but, movement. So my my thought on this is that um, you think about Hegel, you think about Dewey, you think about a lot of that. To a large extent, those guys won. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right, yeah. If you were living in their world, yeah. sort of the what, you just take them for granted. That you take them for granted, yeah, and so the point. idea that there is progress and that you know change is progress and change is moving forward. Those assumptions that you were saying these reporters have um, is an idea that I think our society kind of naturally yeah. agrees with. Yeah, now that's a good point. Um, all right, so let's do let's because we're um, we're just rambling here. Let's move on to um, some vital punditry issues. First of all, I just did this long podcast with with Nick Eberstadt, and I'm going to go out on a limb and tell you right now, I think Nick knows more about North Korea than you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what do you think is going to happen? Do you think uh, we're going to? Uh, Gosh, um, I think that I don't think Donald Trump wants war. This is one yeah. of my defenses of him during the campaign and now. I think Donald Trump is. The danger is that he lashes out and doesn't have the self-control that you would want a president to have. But I think he ideologically is probably closer to me than almost any of those other 17 guys who are up on stage. Except for maybe Rand Paul. Except for Rand Paul in that he doesn't want war. He thinks yeah. war is a bad thing. He was – at times he was for the Iraq and, and uh, Libya intervention. But then later he would articulate in – as much as he can articulate anything, arguments against doing these regime changes, arguments that war is bad. But he's also a dog park conservative. And he thinks you have to constantly show force in order to get what you want. And you have to constantly show the willingness to attack. So with Syria, he's had the outlet of these once a year, every April missile strikes. With uh, Korea, it's a lot trickier Mm -hmm. to do that. But I think that he really does have a attitude towards we are going to make peace here, which is, of course, a, a megalomaniac idea and that, that's infected all our presidents. But I think where he's right is that he knows that peace involves – the peace isn't these guys shaking hands, Moon and Kim shaking hands. It's not them being smiley and nice. Peace involves verifiable unwinding of the nuclear weapons program in North Korea. And I think Trump sort of has an attitude that – if we're tough and we're open at the same time, if I can punch you in the face and then be your best friend in the way that I did to Ted Cruz, right. then we can bring about peace. So I, this is a place where I actually think if we don't just have Trump somehow go all Dr. Strangelove or, or Christopher Walken in the dead or, zone or whatever. Or grab a deal because he thinks it's a legacy thing. Which would make him exactly like Obama and yeah, Clinton. Yeah, <laughs> which I don't think is possible. We saw – I mean, again, I don't want to repeat the podcast that we just did, but – we saw him say how he really thinks maybe he wants to do it in the DMZ because if it works out, if we get something wonderful, what a great location for that. You know? <laughs> and, and that's, that's not, I don't think, the best mindset to go yeah, into. So that would be funny if, if Trump's biggest foreign policy flaw was that he was too much like Obama and Clinton yeah, yeah. wanting a deal. Because that that's our critique of Obama on Iran and, um, and Trump pulling out of Iran is that the Iran deal is good only insofar as you have a contingent attachment to it. Right. That scrapping it could actually make things worse. But Obama's 100 percent, I've got to have this no matter what, right. is, is part of what made it bad. And so having- and part of what made the world the yeah. crap storm that it is right now. Having a contingent relationship to it, being able to walk away. I haven't actually read Art of the Deal, but I, yeah. I feel like I have. Being able to walk away is is uh, necessary to getting a good deal out of it. All right. So Nick Everstadt did not 
want to take the bait fully, and I kind of understood. I mean, he answered the question in good faith because Nick does that. Mm-hmm. But so I'm just personally kind of fascinated by this. Last weekend on the Sunday shows, John Bolton kept repeating. And again, full disclosure, used to be our colleague here, yep. right? A man, by the way, often mislabeled a neocon, not a neocon. He is a hawk. He's a hawk. Right? He's a rubble doesn't he make doesn't trouble kind of guy. He does that 2005 <laughs> uh, inaugural address. Uh, right. Democracy, theology, he's, et cetera. He's a Nixonian, Kissingerian, Jim yep. Baker guy, right? And so you might have disagreed with him on him, but, but not the same disagreements you would have with Bill yep. Crystal. Yeah. Right? So anyway, but John's also really smart. And really clever. And so he's on the Sunday shows and he says, the model we're looking for for North Korean denuclearization is very much, we're looking to do this basically on the Libyan model that we did with Gaddafi. And, and, and oh. like, so for listeners who don't know, Tim's laughing because he can tell where I'm going with this. I have this sneaking suspicion that Bolton is basically telegraphing over Trump's head. To the North Koreans saying, hey, you know that whole reason why you wanted nuclear weapons in the first place because you didn't want to end up dragged through the streets like Gaddafi? Like <laughs> That's what we're thinking of doing so that he yes. can put the kibosh on this. Now, that may be grotesquely unfair to Bolton, but it was just so weird to hear him drop that as the model for how they're approaching this again and again and again. Well, it's Theory. much better if that if that's true. That's better than he actually wants to start the bombing on Monday at, mm-hmm. at noon. Mm-hmm. Uh, foreign policy, what's so tricky about it is that it's the closest we get – and I use a dog park analogy with Trump a lot, but it's the closest we get to sort of stripping bare everything that goes on in society, which is uh, – civilization is about putting multiple layers through force and the threat – between force and the threat of force and our daily interaction. Right. And on foreign policy, there's only like two layers between, yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, would you like to do this? And we are going to kill you all. Right, right. <laughs> and so you you don't step through those with, uh, you know, with just rivals. Uh, with Russia or China, we we keep a very big distance. But at some point, if it's Korea, who is largely detached from the world, North Korea, um, you're always one step away. Well, there's something horribly barbaric with threatening an attack on North Korea because you're probably going to kill civilians who have been enslaved yeah, by yeah. this person. Yeah. At some point, you're always two steps away from that. Yeah. And so we we try to remain civilized. And so if you've got a guy who's willing to just sort of press his finger against that curtain just to say, hey, look, there's something on the other side of it, the the hope of, of decent people has to be – that's a threat that we're making with the hope of never using it. Yeah. See, it's funny, complete tangent, but this is one of the reasons why um, this is this is guy from California, a PhD economist guy, Scarbeck, who wrote this great book about prison gangs and basically uses sort of public choice stuff to talk about oh, yeah. prison gangs, which is fascinating to me. And but and, uh, so I read that book for working while working on my book. And uh, but I also, while I was working on my book, got obsessed with um sort of walking dead as a um, <laughs> as a metaphor as sort of a, as an, an analogy to the advance of civilization because what happens is that when you remove all the vestiges of civilization we return basically to our tribal state and so originally it's like there is no noble savage in walking dead right and there's no loner anyone who works alone eventually gets killed you have to form up into little bands and troops and protect your interests right and as the seasons go by uh 
you're starting to see the first basically city states emerge and um uh and you have what uh Mansur Olsen calls the stationary bandit, which is one of the first um, signs of civilization because the stationary bandit no longer rapes and pillages. He actually has a long-term investment in in economic growth. So yeah. he actually doesn't take everything, right? And that's what Negan is in The Walking Dead. Anyway, um, and that's one of the things I, I always try to think about is like how quickly you remove – these civilizational layers and how quickly everything reverts well, back. So much of good TV that's happened in the last 15 years has been like this, right? right. I mean, Sopranos is about the mob, so it's about uh, a society and rules and stuff sort of stripped down to a more accessible level. Right. The Wire is about kind of a state of war that exists. They're all pre-modern understandings yes. of man's relationship to man. But but with rules slowly building up, and then Wire, there's this one episode where there's like a Sunday truce, because you, you got to be, the drug dealer has to be able to take grandma to church on right, Sunday. Right, right, right. And so somehow these rules inside what looks like a state of nature is what makes it the most the most interesting uh, television. Yeah, and I really feel bad for butchering his name. Is it Scarbeck? Scarbeck? I'll figured out. But he makes this point about how in prison gangs, what happened was, and basically in California and Texas, prisons didn't used to be these crazy state of nature places. But then because of all sorts of various changes in how they ran them, um, they did become a state of nature in part because of, of these giant gangs that were brought in. And so what happened was they basically had to reorganize that, that the, ga- the, the inmates themselves had to impose yeah. order. And so you actually have some of these gangs actually have constitutions and charters <laughs> <laughs> and and they have all of these negotiation rituals about how if you have a grievance with a member of my gang, if your gang has a grievance with a member of my gang, you must bring it to the leader and then we will punish our guy because you're not allowed to punish our guys. Only So it's, it's very Irish in some yes. ways. <laughs> um, anyway, it just made me think about that. Okay, so Mike Pence this week yes. said that he was uh, – proud to be in the same room as Sheriff Joe Arpaio and that Arpaio is a tireless defender of of, of the rule of law of the rule of borders too and yeah. okay, we'll give him that one um, but and the rule of law right and that yes yeah, so this is what the the Washington Examiner editorial will be on on Thursday and we we visited a similar theme back when he was pardoned in in August that the rule of law is a very important idea and it cannot be boiled down to busting heads. Right. Because that's what Donald Trump means when he says, I am the law and order candidate. And busting heads is part of the rule of law. As we've been talking about, if you're not afraid that the cop or the prison guard is going to bust some heads, well, their ability to make and enforce rules is a problem. My my fifth grade daughter was just complaining about one of her teachers who always threatens detention and doesn't follow through on it and how this, you know, makes things worse. And they – this is this is part of it, but if it becomes all of it, then people like Sheriff Clark and Sheriff Arpaio become the 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 image of this rule of law. But the problem is they are lawless. Mm-hmm. In that, uh, one of the, Arpaio, for instance, was told by a court, "You are arresting people on suspicion of being illegal immigrants. This is not something you're allowed to do, and it is in fact racially discriminatory." And he said, I'm not going to follow this. We can talk about overreaching courts and all that stuff. But a sheriff not suing to say, actually, no, I have a right to do this, but just deciding to disregard it um, in this case is not the rule of law. And conservative rule of law, law and order, one of the things I like to think of 
as uh, as part of my job is to enforce standards mostly on the people with most power. Right. So the rule of law above all needs to apply to the people with most power. Right. It has to apply to people coming across our border. It has to apply to the common criminals, but only after it applies to the people who have the power of the state at their fingertips, whether you're the sheriff in Milwaukee or you're the the sheriff down in Arizona. And so for Pence and to go ahead and say you're in favor of the rule of law, I mean the a guy who was caught breaking the law and openly violating the law. In a lot of ways. I mean, Josh Barrow tweeted something earlier today about how Arpaio staged an assassination attempt on himself yes. to win an election and then put the framed guy in jail for four years. And so this, That's bad. This is bad, and it's worse <laughs> than the guy selling loose cigarettes on the corner, right. and it's worse than the guy who crosses our border and that sort of thing. Um and it would be interesting again, like if you get Jonathan Haidt on your uh, – not Jonathan Chait, Jonathan Haidt on your podcast. I'll have them both. <laughs> to, uh, to talk about this. Um, a lot of people – and I don't think I'm one of these, but I know, I know a lot of people are. A lot of people are just really bothered by well, – with an illegal immigrant, I think you need to have a rule of law for all sorts of reasons. But again, I would apply it to the people in power first. But a lot of people are really bugged by – any rules being broken, even if they can't point to either the justice of the rule or the harm done by the breaking of it. And I do think that's a lot of the conservative mindset and a lot of what Trump's appeal is. And so better understanding sort of our side's base would be better understand why would Arpaio and Clark have this appeal? And I think part of it is no tolerance for rule breakers. Yeah. And it's sort of Javert from yeah. Les Miserables. They're allowed to break rules because they don't have tolerance for rule breakers. Yeah. Right? No, I think that's right. You know, and, and, and when I try to explain to people how – because you know, I'm sort of fixated on all this sort of hard wiring, tribal wiring that we've got. And Haidt, I've read you know, all, a lot of – not all of his stuff, a lot of his stuff. Um, this guy Paul Bloom at Yale does great stuff. Um, the easiest way to sort of explain to people how your emotions can swamp everything else is think about – the instantaneous rage you have when you're waiting in line for a movie and somebody cuts in front of you and is rude about it, right? And it's not just that they do it, yeah. but they say, screw you, what are you going to do about it, right? That kind of thing. And it, it's, you're still going to get to see the movie. You're still going to get it. It really does do no harm. Yep. But there's something, I don't know, your hippocampus, your, you know, your somewhere in your brain that says, must find rock and crush skull, you know, because yeah. it makes you so angry. And there's a lot of that going on in our politics that I don't think we really kind of understand. No, I think I think that's right. I do think the sort of um, – so Heritage Foundation, when they were coming up with a new motto a few years ago, they came up with this thing and they were going to battle cronyism and it was awesome and I loved it. And I talked to them about it and they said, we're going to talk about favoritism for none, opportunity for all. And when they focus grouped it – they found that the favoritism for none sort of stimulated people's brains and yeah, yeah. excited them more than the opportunity for all. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of against our like intellects. It's kind of upsetting. Shouldn't it matter more that people get what they deserve than that some people aren't getting more than they deserve? Yeah. There are multiple Bible passages yeah, about yeah. that. And uh, But the fact is that, no, people really do get upset about – Who's getting uh, – who's not getting the bad thing or is getting the good thing that they don't deserve? In in Paul Bloom's book, uh, Not Just Babies, the latest one, uh, Against Empathy, mm-hmm. which I immediately 
<laughs> Tell me more, you know, when I hear against empathy. Um, he talks about how um, if you show people, and I'm probably butchering this, but you'll get the gist. If you show people images of someone being tortured or abused, mm-hmm. right? Your empathetic centers of your brain light up and you, you imagine it being done to yourself and you feel sorry for them. But then if you tell them that they're actually fans of the sports team that you hate, <laughs> <laughs> pleasure centers light up in your brain, you know? And in my book, I call this ecstatic schadenfreude. So much of our politics right now is less about doing right or following the rules, but about punishing our and enemies. And it's because we think that everybody thinks that their own side is losing. Yeah, that, that, that came on that poll that. recently, right? There was a yeah. few poll, you know, said that everyone thinks they're losing. Everyone thinks that they're losing. And I mean, Republicans are winning elections up until now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Demo- the left is winning the culture war. And so everybody thinks that they're losing. And so I see this with with cake baking things. Almost every opportunity that I see an analogy, you know, Bruce Springsteen won't perform in North Carolina because he has a conscious object. He's refusing to bake the cake. The, you know, Delta not doing the branded credit cards with the NRA. The bar kicking out the guy wearing the MAGA hat. All of these guys are refusing to bake the cake. And I get so many conservatives saying, no, the government should force them to do it just like we're being forced to bake the cakes. Yeah, yeah. And I actually say, if we look at the thing, like, I think we're going to win on the literal cake case. Yeah. We're so far, we won on Hobby Lobby. We're so far winning on the Little Sisters of the Poor. So in these legal things, yeah, the other side is wrong and has an evil uh, intention. But because of the perception that we've already lost, yeah. then there's a desire for retribution. That's a good point. All right. So I'm going to give you a choice as, okay. a, as, a, as one of the few returning guests on on, on the remnant. You can either... Do a reading of Bigfoot erotica yourself. <laughs> <laughs> or one of these things I'm kind of obsessed with these days. I've written about this a couple of times. I really got to look up or ask Charlie who specifically it was. But when in the wake of the Kevin Williamson thing, Williamson thing, we were talking about how if you want really interesting, engaging writers, you're going to have to accept that they're going to have some weird ideas yes. on some stuff because – it, it's a package deal. If you can see the world from a slightly different perspective yes. that makes you interesting, that also means you're going to come to some weird conclusions about some weird stuff, right? Or at least will seem weird to you, right? And so Charlie used the example of how it used to be – there used to be much more freedom to do this and to be weird about in some parts of your life mm-hmm. and not in others. Now there's this sort of monistic, totalizing thing that you have to conform to establish norms in every regard. And – so he said that there was some guy who was like an advisor to Wilson or I don't know, not Coolidge, but one of those guys. And he was like a major famous like industrialist technician guy who also just happened to believe that six feet under the earth, there was a civilization of mole people. <laughs> <laughs> and so give me one of the things that you have, that you believe or that you think about mm-hmm. that is weird. Yep. That that you wouldn't necessarily write about, and you can say that this is just something that you daydream about. You can qualify it any way you want, mm-hmm. or I can give you some erotica to read. Yeah, definitely not going to go <laughs> to the erotica. So I don't know if you ever follow sort of weird Catholic Twitter. Um, there's a lot of leftists out there uh-huh. who are Catholic and hardcore, but I think that's some where, where some of the more interesting um, weird ideas are out there, um, and to me. A story that I've been looking at a little bit that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is there's this one company, business, trying to get FDA approval 
of sort of a system for natural family planning. Now, natural family planning basically used to be called the rhythm method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's how to either get pregnant or avoid getting pregnant without using artificial contraception. So this is, in fact, the teaching of the Catholic Church. Nobody out there sort of thinks that it – or a lot of people assume it's not or assume that nobody follows it. And sure, you know, 90 percent of even the Catholics in a pew on a given Sunday would uh, reject this teaching but come to, you know, my boys' school or, or the girls' school that my daughter will be going to next year and you'll see a lot of families with 12 and 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ones that have only six are engaging in natural family planning. And so there's this – and when I put it out there last year that somebody was uh, coming up with a system that has to do with, you know, a temperature, a thermometer that the – in from the woman's mouth can go to like a hundredth of a degree and all these other uh-huh. things that and, – and charting and apps and all this stuff. Whereas rhythm method carries this idea of like circling dates on yeah, calendars yeah, 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 and yeah. putting X's in certain days. When I mentioned it on Twitter – there was like legitimate uh, sort of condescending uh-huh. hatred from a lot of people. But that, I think, is one of the more interesting things. Will this spread beyond a tiny little sliver of the right? Because I think that um, in in when I talk about marriage and that sort of stuff, the binding together of marriage and sexuality and love and family formation right. is an essential part of Western civilization. Sure, sure. And so did the, the sexual revolution – undo a lot of that in part by divorcing once you divorce sex from uh having babies then did that unravel a lot of the other stuff so that's one of the things that i think is is thoroughly unexplored because nobody wants to give up their contraception okay interesting interesting um um is that weird enough it'll it'll do it'll do i mean i was i was really kind of scared because one of the recurring themes on on this podcast, when it comes to things Catholic, is my long-held desire for a return of papal armies. Ah. And I was wondering if you were going to go. No, there. I don't know what this pope would do with his army. <laughs> <laughs> if you could give me a, a, a Ratzinger army, I might go for it. But. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, man. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. And uh, uh, we're going to do some various and sundry now, but uh, that's about it. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get the bone. All right, so uh, Tim has left the room, and I'm kicking myself because, first of all, uh, Jack tells me that I kept saying barefoot erotica, not bigfoot erotica. Is this true? Uh, you said barefoot once and bigfoot once, and I just don't know what to make of that Freudian slip, and I'm not going to pursue an investigation on that matter. I, I'm sorely tempted to start Googling barefoot erotica, because you know it exists. What is it, what is it rule? 34. 34? <sighs> there's always porn for it? There's got, we know there's foot porn. I just well, know, isn't, isn't... The phrase exists. Yeah, the... The secret uh, theme of Quentin Tarantino's work is that supposedly he likes people's feet. And then also that guy who was kicked out of Nickelodeon recently was like a foot fetishist. Interesting. Um, Interesting. They must love the opening sequence to the original Footloose, which is just just feet. Oh man, I um, we don't even we shouldn't even talk about their, how they probably reacted to that scene. Um, all right, well maybe on the well I can't do it with Russ Roberts. He's he's I feel like the guy's my rabbi. I can't like talk about barefoot erotica around him. But <laughs> maybe on some future podcast we can explore these themes. Um, the thing I'm kicking myself well, I'm kicking myself about two things. So I'll just do them in seriatim. One, stop kicking yourself. Stop kicking yourself. <laughs> um, uh, first is again. Um, I didn't get to the freaking ad for for 
conversations with Crystal. Then again, I don't think I was supposed to do two ads for them this week, but so this is bonus stuff anyway. But I really do want to plug um, conversations with with Bill Crystal. It is, uh, you know, I, it was funny. I gave this talk at AI last night about my book, and a bunch of remnant listeners came up, and one of them. Uh, it, w- we won't get into the weird sub fan genre of Jack Butler fans because that yeah, kind of made me uncomfortable. I know it makes you uncomfortable. It certainly does. <laughs> um, uh, and don't let that fame go to my head. And uh, uh, but at least one or two guys were saying how they they really want just a straight up explainer on Straussianism because they didn't mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't stick with. Hayward. Is there such a thing as a straight-up explainer of Straussianism? Is that is that permissible? Can that exist? Well, <laughs> it's an interesting question. Gary Schmidt, our friend Gary Schmidt, and I can't remember. Maybe it was maybe it was with Bill. I can't remember. I think for one of the early epi- issues of National Affairs, if not one of the last issues of the Public Interest, did a basic sort of what was Leo Strauss up to thing. And I think that's the last place I saw something like that. Um, the problem this is one of these real problems is that you l- truly cannot trust almost anybody on the left to d- explain who and what Leo Strauss was represented, <laughs> right? No. Just can't. And you can't really trust any of the Straussians to do it because it's all of this esoteric, you know, we have to keep some of it secret stuff. Yeah, and depending on what kind of Straussian it is, they may or may not, like, selectively say or not say things to cast aspersions on the other kind of Straussian. That's right. That's right. And there, there's, there's, there are layers of, of, of rhetorical subtweeting to Straussian conversations that, I, you know, they just go flying over my head. But only reason why I thought of that was that Bill, who is, I don't know if he would flat out call himself a Straussian, but he's deeply Straussian sympathetic. He has Harvey Mansfield, who's one of the last great Straussians, um, on his show a bunch of times. And he talks about all sorts of things. He's one of the world's leading Machiavelli scholars. It's great stuff. And that's one of the things I like about the show. I mean, there's some guests I'm, I'm more interested in than others, which I think is true of this podcast as well for most people. <laughs> But Bill really does show the side of him that is truly interested in ideas, and he gets people on there, and he ha- they have the time to sort of flesh out long, serious ideas in a serious way. So people who want to check it out can. And the other reason why I'm bringing this up is because I meant to talk to Tim about this. There's this very strange piece on The Federalist. Um, I, I, I saw that Molly Hemingway tweeted it out, but I couldn't actually find it on the homepage. But if you follow the link... And we'll have a link on our on our show notes. It's all about how conservatives need to recognize that it's the title is it's time for the right to realize the left is a much greater threat than Trumpism. And this is of a genre of piece stretching back, I think, to the Flight 93 election piece by Michael Anton. Um, and it's similar to that in a couple of ways. The first is it basically makes a very similar argument. The second is it's written um, under a pseudonym. And there seems to be this weird sort of compulsion of people to hector people like me about our lack of courage and forthrightness in engaging in in the fights that need to be had from people who aren't willing to actually put their own name on these things. And I find that a little annoying. It's not a big deal, but it's a little annoying. Um, Anyway, this guy uh, who goes by the name John Erickson um, says a lot of things in the beginning that I completely agree with, that, you know, the left – is uh, condescending on 
sort of not just conservatives, but sort of tr just tradition-minded people all around the country that it is there is a culture war that they're waging and that they're winning and all these kinds of things. I'm not going to belabor all that because aside from about two or three thousand columns I've written on these themes, um, I wrote now I've written now three books that explore this point, and I don't need to be lectured to by a guy hiding behind a pseudonym about how how the left operates and all the rest. What I thought was interesting was that he argues, uh, going off of my conversation with Bill Crystal, which you can check out at, Chris, at Conversations with uh, Crystal, that my contention that what I want to do is use arguments and persuasion to win people over and convince people um, and to, to, to try and make the country and our politics a better place, that that's not sufficient, that we have to do more. And he has this extended analogy to, towards the untouchables about what we should be willing to do for all of this. I think this is, not to put too fine a point on it, fairly asinine. Um, because first of all, uh, it's a bad analogy in the sense that uh, in the scene in The Untouchables, they're talking about... Oh, you mean the movie, not the uh, not the Hindu... <laughs> no, no, no. Indian yeah, society. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of the Chicago way stuff, right? Okay. And it's this argument that basically, you know, we should resort to violence, um, to do you, win. Do you want to do a bad Sean Connery impression? I do not want to do a bad, but can maybe I? you can get some audio in there. Um, okay, fine. And uh, um, and so I'm not willing to bring a gun to a knife fight and kill anybody. And if that's if and I, and I understand that he doesn't mean the analogy literally, but it's a bad analogy simply because there are some things that I'm not willing to do. And and what drives me crazy about this argument i hear it all of the time is this it's basically and i'm going to if i have time i'll do a corner post about this we'll link to it first of all it's a popular front argument it's basically a no enemies to the right argument and i don't see why a someone who's chosen the profession i have which is to be a writer um and to explain my views and make my arguments in as much good faith as i can um and to try to persuade people by using facts and logic and reason and maybe a little humor that somehow I need to do more. And I'm not sure what that more supposed to be, is supposed to be. Um, the piece is unclear about it. Everyone's always unclear about it. And I have a theory about what's going on. Uh, this guy, Steve Tellis, has made, first made this point to me about how with the, the decline in the power and, and discipline of political parties, there are a lot of sort of institutions outside the formal party structure that have taken over the role of what political parties used to do. Political parties used to, one of their primary goals used to be to educate voters. And political parties don't really do that anymore. And so it falls to places sort of in the conservative media, Fox News, National Review, Weekly Standard, this podcast, whatever, to sort of play that function. And now, I think there's a lot of truth to that. The problem is, is that I don't friggin' work for the Republican Party. And it's not my job to pretend to be a hack for the Republican Party. And so there are – I hear this all of the time that what I'm supposed to do is somehow get in line and do what – whatever is necessary to own the libs, right? And why can't I stay in my lane? You know, I mean one of the reasons why I hate this freaking Kanye West story is because I can't stand how people – how entertainers can't stay in their lanes. But somehow it's, it's a sign of, of some sort of – uh, either cowardice or unwillingness to um, follow through on my principles that I am not uh, that I'm not willing to exceed the boundaries of just using 
reason and persuasion and facts to make my arguments. I must be doing something more. Well, why can't that be my job? And I can define it, you know, and I'll do what my job is. And if, if the party wants to do other things, if this guy who's hiding behind a pseudonym wants to do other things, let him do what he thinks is necessary to do. I don't see why I have to live down to the expectations of people like this in order to win some fight when they make no effort to actually prove that me doing that would help win. It's really sort of it's a very much an example of how a kind of totalizing progressive mindset has infected so many people on the right that they get mad at people like me for simply saying, hey, look, I want to make arguments. I want to actually model good behavior. I don't want to mirror the bad behavior of the other side. And um, and why this is still coming up now, at least, as you know, as Jack was saying before off air, you know, at least when Michael Anton did his piece, first of all, it was well written. It was sort of flamboyant. I thought there was some really bad faith that went after people who have spent their lives like me having these arguments, making these debates, being out in the open with my name on things, um, taking slings and arrows from all sides, um, how we were sort of sellouts or cowardly or members of the Davoisie while he was writing that piece from the comforts of a hedge fund making, I don't know, seven, eight figures a year, um, lecturing me about uh, my lack of courage while he wouldn't even put his own name on it. But it's, at least there was a well-written piece and it was galvanizing and all the rest. This, this crap is the same stuff 18 months later. And I'm fascinated by why some of my friends just, you know, I tried to do a radio shows this week for the book. And some of these guys who are my friends, all they want to do is talk about Donald Trump and, 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 and convince me that I have to change my mind and celebrate him full spectrum across the board. And when I say, look, I'm willing to praise him when he does good things and I'm willing to criticize him when he does bad things because that's my job, somehow that is considered a betrayal and I must join the popular front and, you know, and, and just simply act as if I work for the RNC. Well, it's not my friggin' job. And I resent these people who still think that this is an interesting or persuasive argument um, without even proposing what it is I should do when I sort of Cincinnati, like Cincinnatus, like lay down my pen and join the fray. Am I supposed to start lying? Am I supposed to start saying things that I don't believe are true or picking fights that I think are stupid just to own the libs or lend aid and comfort to Donald Trump? A guy who, you know, let's face it, is not really part of the conservative movement. He's part of this Trump movement that the conservative movement is bending towards. I have no problem with people who want to make the transactional argument for this guy. And there's a solid argument to be made there. Judges, tax cuts, deregulation, all that kind of stuff. And I celebrate all of those things. I'm just getting really tired of these people who constantly just can't let go of the idea that someone might disagree with them about Donald Trump and think that if the last conservative, you know, that me or Bill Kristol or somebody or it's David French, whoever it is, if we finally bend the knee to and join hands for this one final sort of Ragnarok confrontation with the libs that all will be right in the world. If your movement needs me to start acting like a hack to win, then your movement's not going to win anyway, even if I did. So anyway, end of rant. I just want to get out of my system. Wow. Sorry about that. Uh, it's been a long week. <laughs> so anyway, uh, at 5 o'clock today, we'll get the news about where or if we land on the New York Times um, bestseller list. I'm very pleased to announce that we were the 14th best-selling book 
uh, nonfiction book on Amazon over the last week. And that includes like some self-help books and some cookbooks and that kind of thing. So we're probably in terms of like major normal nonfiction books, we were probably, I don't know, closer to like seven or something like that. Yeah. And honestly, some of those self-help books should be in the fiction section anyway. I think that's probably right. <laughs> um, and uh, I really want to thank all you guys for the reviews, for the support. Can't tell you how many people came up to me last night to ask me to stick to my guns and keep doing what I'm doing. And it, it really does mean a lot to me. I know I sound I'm bitter and cranky here and if you could see i've actually been talking into this microphone with my foot on jack's chest um but uh i really am you remove your foot at some point (laughs) we'll see i mean the really gratuitous part is i'm wearing golf cleats but uh (laughs) anyway i just wanted to say thank you to everybody and again if you could buy the book that would be wonderful if you could leave a review at itunes or wherever you get your podcasts that would be great too and we're approaching the point where Basically, it's just going to be me going around the country talking about the book and um, word of mouth that will decide whether or not this thing is a success and paid off for all the hard work. But we're going to try and keep podcasting um, even from the road. And we request your um, uh, a little bit of your patience um, with us about how we do it because some of it may have to be by Skype or Carrier Pigeon or Crow from King's Landing. I don't know. But anyway, until next time, thank you for listening and I'll see you on the next podcast. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>